All right, you can turn to Genesis 3. We'll be finishing up Genesis 3 today after starting it last week. Let's see, some of you have heard this story before. When I was just a kid, I was playing one day with my brother and our cousins in my dad's study. And I found what looked like a toy. It was a little clear case with all of these shiny metal cylinders in it that you could screw together. Now, I knew that I was not supposed to play with my daddy's things, but this looked like a really fun toy. I mean, it's metal cylinders that you screw together. And I was basically born an engineer. And so if you give me something that has to be put together, I will put it together. I I can't help myself. And so I opened the case, even though I knew I shouldn't, and I started putting the cylinders together. And then I discovered that the middle cylinder, the really big one, it had a shiny metal button in the middle of it. Now, uh, if you want a button to be pushed, what should you do? You should put it in front of a little boy. Because we must push it. We cannot help ourselves. A button must be pushed. And so I gave in to temptation. I pushed that button and I discovered that it wasn't a toy. It was my dad's flare gun. And I shot that flare right through the ceiling where it ricocheted, split into two, it came down, caught the carpet on fire, bounced up into the attic and caught it on fire. And I and all the other kids ran screaming and crying out of the study, convinced we were all about to die. Now, I learned a couple very important lessons on that afternoon. The first thing that I learned on that afternoon is that temptation always looks good. It always looks appealing. It always looks good to us. That's why we give in. If temptation did not look appealing, you wouldn't give in to it. So temptation always looks good. Shiny metal cylinders and a, and a button. It looks so good. Temptation always looks good to us. So it whispers into our ears, cheat on that test because then you'll get a better grade, a better GPA, a better job and have a better life. Drink, just one more drink, because then you'll really feel relaxed and life will be so much better. Look at porn or sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend, because that will be so fun, it will be so wonderful. Tell that joke or put that person down, because then everyone will think you're funny and they'll want to be your friend. Temptation always looks good. It makes grand promises to us, to satisfy us, to make us happy, to give us relief, to give us pleasure. Temptation makes grand promises to us, but here's the second lesson I learned on that fateful day. While it promises pleasure, it always ends in pain. Always, without exception. Temptation makes grand promises to you, but it never delivers. Instead of giving you pleasure, it always invariably gives you pain. That is what Adam and Eve discovered in the passage we're going to study this morning as we continue Genesis chapter 3. Now, we started last week, so let me just review for a second. At the end of Genesis 2, where are Adam and Eve? Well, they're living in a garden that God has made, and it's perfect. They are completely blessed. Life is as happy as it could possibly be. So everything is perfect at the end of Genesis 2. But then at the beginning of Genesis 3, temptation comes. Satan enters the garden. God's chief adversary, Satan, he possesses the body of a snake and sneaks into the garden to tempt Adam and Eve. And he goes after Eve, and you may recall from what we looked at last week, he attacks her heart by inspiring within her an ungrateful attitude. And he deceives her mind by undermining God's truthfulness and goodness. And then Satan steps back. So he's tempted Eve, then he steps back and lets Eve make her decision in verse 6. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So Eve looks at the tree. She analyzes this forbidden tree, and she discovers, sure enough, it is all good. What temptation is offering, this forbidden fruit, it looks incredibly good. It will satisfy her hunger, delight her eyes, enrich her mind. It looks good, and so she takes, she sins, she eats. And within moments, Adam and Eve discover this truth that while temptation promises pleasure, it always ends in pain. That's what we're going to study this morning, the pain of sin. We're going to look at what came of Adam and Eve's sin. We're going to look at it in four parts. First, we're going to look at the effects of sin. 
then the curse of sin, then the legacy of sin, and finally the end of sin. So let's jump right in. Let's begin with the effects of sin. By effects, I mean what came immediately after their choice to sin. The immediate results that they got for choosing to disobey God. To understand the effects, what we need to do first is we need to go back and ask ourselves, what was true of Adam and Eve right before they sinned? Look at the end of chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We see that word naked and we wonder what is going on there. Well, naked here in chapter 2, it's, it's about more than just being unclothed. If you're going to be naked with someone, that means that you are willing to be vulnerable with them. You don't have to hide anything. You don't have to cover up. You don't have to protect yourself. You're willing to be vulnerable. Adam and Eve were willing to be completely vulnerable with God and with one another because they were completely innocent. They had nothing to hide, nothing to cover up, nothing to fear, nothing to protect themselves from. So before sinning, Adam and Eve enjoyed complete innocence and perfect intimacy with God and with one another. That was their state of existence before sin. How about after sin? What do they get after they have sinned? Look with me. Let's start reading in verse 7. So this is moments after they eat the forbidden fruit. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. So right before this passage that we just read, Satan told Eve, if you eat the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will know good and evil. That wasn't a total lie because that has come true. They ate the forbidden fruit and now sure enough, they do know good and evil. They know it by experience. Now Adam and Eve know by experience how good life used to be when they were walking in obedience and how bad life is now that they've chosen evil. They know evil by experience. They know that by choosing sin, they have chosen to exchange innocence and intimacy for something else. They've given up innocence and intimacy and instead they've gotten shame. That's the first thing. The first effect of sin, they exchange innocence and intimacy for shame. You notice in verse 7, as soon as they eat, the juice is probably still dripping down their chins, what do they realize? They're naked and now they feel ashamed. They knew they were naked before sin, but now that reality brings them shame. And so what do they do? They grab the biggest leaves they can find, fig leaves, and try to cover themselves up. They try to hide themselves and clothe themselves. What's going on? Well, when you are innocent, when you have nothing to hide, then it's easy to be naked. But when you have something to hide, you got to cover up. Now Adam and Eve have something big to hide. And so they cover up. From whom? Well, from God, from one another, from creation. They are desperate to cover themselves. They can no longer be vulnerable. They can no longer be intimate because they have something to hide. Their nakedness makes them feel ashamed. They're desperate to cover up. What's fascinating to me, now that my kids are, are about to turn four this week, I've noticed actually all the way back since they were two, they would do this interesting thing. If you caught them doing something wrong, so if you caught them in the act disobeying, they would start to cry over the fact that you caught them, and then they would tell you, please turn around and don't look at me. They didn't want us to look at them. Why? Because as young as two, they already knew sin always brings shame. They could feel it. They felt ashamed of what they've done. Sin always brings shame. So they have chosen to trade innocence and intimacy first for shame, second for fear. For fear. So, so they cover up with these fig leaves, and no sooner have they covered up than what do they try to do? They try to hide. So, so they're going to try to hide from God. God shows up and asks, where are you? He talks with Adam, and Adam tells God why he wanted to hide in verse 10. Why? Why was Adam hiding? 
Because he was afraid. He was afraid of God finding out what he had done and holding him accountable. This is fear of punishment. Adam used to enjoy perfect harmony with God. Now he's afraid of God. He's afraid of being caught and found out and exposed and held accountable for what he has done. What Adam is demonstrating to us is that sin is always followed by fear. You cannot escape that. Sin breeds fear. Proverbs puts it this way. The wicked flee when no one pursues. When you live in sin, you don't need a reason to be afraid. That'll just happen inside your heart. You can't prevent that. You can't keep yourself from being fearful. You're fearful that someone will find out. You'll be held accountable. You'll be exposed. There's a story of a, a British playwright, a guy named Noel Coward, who sent identical notes to the 20 most prominent men in London. And the notes said, all is discovered, escape while you can. How many of those 20 men do you think fled London? All 20 of them. All of them. Why? Because sin breeds fear. They didn't need a reason to be afraid. They were already afraid. He just capitalized on that. It's interesting. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, the Bible tells us that the fruit of righteousness is peace down deep in your soul. When you choose that which is righteous, even if life is hard and you are suffering, still at the core of your being, you will feel peace. Sin gives you the exact opposite. Sin robs your soul of peace and fills you with fear. Sin is that thing that keeps you up at night, sweating, terrified, worrying, your heart beating hard because you are afraid you will be exposed, found out, and held accountable. Sin always brings shame, it always brings fear, and third, it always brings guilt. Always brings guilt. Immediately, as soon as you have sinned, you will know guilt You'll you'll notice God invited Adam to confess. It's interesting. God shows up and he doesn't just hammer Adam and Eve. He invites Adam to confess. Adam, what have you done? Does Adam take up God's offer to to confess, to repent? Well, no, he doesn't. Let's let's see what Adam did uh, in verse 12. Read verse 12 with me. The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Well, Adam does say I ate, but this is not a confession, is it? What is Adam doing in this verse? What's he doing here? He's shifting the blame. Adam is a pretty gutsy guy because he shifts the blame, not only to Eve, but you notice to God, the woman whom you gave me. And Adam's a pretty gutsy guy. He shifts the blame off to God. Eve does the same. She's not quite so gutsy as Adam. She just shifts it to the snake. But both of them are shifting blame. Now, why are they doing that? What's going on here? Well, as soon as we sin, we feel guilt. You can't escape that. That is just what sin produces in your heart is a feeling of guilt, and we don't like that feeling. Guilt doesn't feel good to us. And so as soon as you feel guilt, what are you going to desire to do? You want to get rid of it. You want to shift the guilt off of yourself. How do you do that? By making yourself the victim. That's what Adam is doing. If I can make myself look like the victim, then I can claim it wasn't my fault. Can't hold me responsible. I couldn't help it because I'm the victim. Adam and Eve are so desperate to make themselves into the victims, to escape that feeling of guilt, that they'll throw anyone under the bus. Adam will throw God and Eve under the bus to make himself look like the victim so he can get rid of guilt. That's what we do. When guilt strikes, when guilt sets in, we will do anything we can to shift the blame off of ourselves onto other people. It's really sad. Before sin, Adam, Eve, and God enjoyed perfect harmony in their relationships. Everything was, they, they knew, they didn't even know what strife was. They didn't know what it meant to have a fight. Everything was perfectly harmonious until they sinned. And then sin brought guilt and guilt divides. It always does because you and I can't both be the victims. Somebody's at fault here. I feel guilty. I don't like that. So I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure you're the one who's guilty and not me. Sin divides us. Guilt divides us. And so as soon as Adam and Eve give into sin, it fills their hearts with guilt and they begin doing whatever they can to throw someone else under the bus. What we find looking at the example of Adam and Eve is as soon as they have given into sin, they have exchanged innocence and intimacy for shame, fear, and guilt. And what we want to notice here, what we want to see is that these are not part of the curse. The curse doesn't begin till later in the chapter. God hasn't cursed anything yet. 
God hasn't spoken a word of judgment yet. This isn't part of the curse. These are just the natural, inescapable effects of sin. You live in a moral universe. And so when you choose sin, this will always be the result. You cannot escape these effects. Nothing you can do. So let's be clear about what has happened. Eve looked at the tree and the tree looked really good. Temptation, sin, it looked great. That food looked satisfying. The tree looked beautiful, a delight to the eyes. It promised to enrich her mind. And so she takes the apple because temptation promises her great pleasure. Did it deliver? Maybe for like a second. Maybe for like a second, it really felt good to have given into temptation. But in moments, just moments, the wheels come off and pain kicks in. And it's fascinating from verse seven on throughout the rest of the chapter, nothing good is said about the fruit. Right before she sinned, all she could see was how good it was. It's all about how beautiful and wonderful it is. She sins, and whatever was good about the fruit, maybe it did taste really incredible. Maybe it was the best meal anyone has ever had. Doesn't matter. She's totally forgotten everything good about the fruit because pain is kicked in. Moment she gives in to sin, she exchanges innocence and intimacy for shame, fear, and guilt. What Adam and Eve are realizing is that sin is never worth the price. Never, never worth the price. Proverbs put it this way. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. What it's getting at is that temptation, sin, it tastes sweet when it's in your mouth, but then you swallow and it fills you with pain and death and destruction. A moment of pleasure in exchange for a lifetime of pain. I think what this is about, if you want a more visual metaphor for this, it's like when you go to the state fair and vendors tempt you with that absurd fried food. So apparently at the State Fair of Texas, uh, you can get a fried Oreo. You can get a fried Reese's peanut butter cup. You can get a fried stick of butter on a, on a stick um, because apparently eating butter wasn't bad enough for you, so let's batter it and fry it. You can get fried bacon, and I find that one ironic because bacon, it's already fried, but apparently once is not enough, and so they bread it and they chicken fat fry it. So you got twice fried bacon. Now, why do people buy that food? Because in the mouth, it tastes great. But then you swallow it, and it really hurts. Fills you with regret. I've had, not that bad, but some food like that before. And it tastes great in your mouth, but then it fills you with regret because your stomach starts to feel sick, and you can feel the pound of weight going to your stomach right now, that fat growing. A moment of pleasure in the mouth is followed by a lifetime of pain in the stomach. That's the idea of sin. It promises you great pleasure. It never delivers. It fills you with pain instead of the pleasure you were expecting. Sin is never worth the, never worth the cost. That's what Adam and Eve discover here at the beginning of, of this section on the consequences of sin. They see the effects of sin, the inescapable, natural, immediate effects of sin are shame, fear, and guilt. So that's, that's bad news, but we haven't even gotten to the curse yet. So let's now move on to the curse of sin. It's time for God to speak. Adam and Eve have experienced the natural, inescapable consequences of their sin. Now God speaks in judgment. The curse begins. So let's look at the curse of sin. It begins in verse 14, but we're actually going to skip verses 14 and 15 till the end. Let's look at verse 16. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever." Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. 
So God renders judgment upon sin. It's what what we call the curse, God's curse upon sin. And this curse actually explains all of the pain and suffering that you see in the world. Where, Where did all that come from? Remember, end of chapter one, God looks at the world he created, and what does he say about it? It is very good. It's very good, but, but you don't have to be very old to notice that the world that we live in is not very good. We live in a world that is full of pain and suffering and hatred and racism and all kinds of horrible things. So where did all of that bad, where did all of that evil come from? The curse is the answer. This is the passage that explains why the world we live in is so broken. God steps up and renders judgment. He levels a curse against sin, and that curse comes in three parts. First, God curses labor. God had given both Adam and Eve a job to do, a significant job to do. Adam was created with the job of providing for his family. He was to work the ground to provide. Eve was created with the job of bringing forth the next generation, childbirth. So God gives both of them a job to do, and God creates life in such a way that both of those jobs would be easy, safe, and rewarding. That's how God intended it. He intended Adam's work. When Adam worked creation to provide for his family, it was supposed to be easy and safe and rewarding. Everything Adam would do would work out well the way that God designed work to be. And Eve's labor, bringing forth children, that was meant to always be easy and safe and and successful. None of the bad stuff, none of the dangerous stuff, none of the painful stuff that we associate with bringing forth children. It was supposed to be easy, safe, and rewarding. But then sin kicked in, and sin ruined the labor that God had created. It cursed both of them. So Eve in childbirth is cursed. In verse 16, God says, in pain you will bring forth children. That word pain in Hebrew, it's not just physical pain. It is also emotional distress. It means to suffer, to to be in anguish. Childbirth would now be accompanied by pain and suffering. And I think that's more than just labor pains. I think that's about all of the painful stuff that comes in childbirth. So that would include infertility and miscarriages and infant mortality and moms dying on the operating table. None of that was what God intended for the human race. All of that is the result of Adam and Eve's sin. So Eve's labor is cursed. So is Adam's. His work is cursed. And let's just really be clear here. Work is not part of the curse. God designed work to be a good gift for us. But work was supposed to be always rewarding, always successful, always joyful. Now it's not. Work is often unsuccessful. It is often frustrating and painful and difficult and hard. And that's not God's fault. That's our fault. That's the fault of the human race. Adam and Eve chose sin and work was broken. So yeah, you don't enjoy your job. It's not God's fault. That's Adam's fault. You were supposed to enjoy your job. That's how God created work to be, a joy for you. But sin broke that. So sin brought a curse upon our labors. Second, it brought a curse upon our relationships. Before giving into sin, Adam, Eve, and God enjoyed perfect relationships. There's perfect harmony between God, Adam, and Eve, and creation. Perfect harmony in every relationship. But sin came in and broke all three of those relationships. All three were broken by the curse of sin. So your relationship with your spouse, that was broken by the curse of sin. God talks about that at the end of verse 16. He says to Eve, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Your desire will be for your husband. God is not talking about physical attraction or sexual desire. Your desire there, it means your desire will be to rule over your husband. You will want to take charge and rule over him. That will be the natural disposition of wives from this moment on. That's not how God designed it. He designed marriages to be a place of perfect harmony, perfect partnership. He designed men and women as equals, each with their own role. The the man to lovingly lead the home, the wife to joyfully and honorably submit to him. Men and women were designed to enjoy and be completely satisfied in those roles, but then sin came in and it broke that. Now Eve would never be content to submit to Adam again. Submission would chafe against her and she would constantly want to take charge. But Adam is also affected because God says now he will rule over you and rule over. That's not a good word. 
That means to dominate, to be a tyrant over. Husbands were designed, we we were to sacrificially love our wives, to lead through selflessness, but now we are tempted to be cruel and hard and mean and unloving to our wives. That was never how God intended marriage to work. He never meant for there to be strife and discord in the marital relationship. It's not his fault, it's our fault. Adam chose sin and it broke the marriage relationship. It also broke our relationship to creation. In verse 17, God says, cursed is the ground because of you. Creation was meant to be a blessing to humanity, to provide for all of our needs, but now it is broken. It doesn't work the way it was supposed to, and now creation, as a result, it gives us thorns and thistles. That's stuff that we don't want, stuff that harms us. Creation was designed to give us nothing but good. Now we are at war with creation. We harm it, it harms us. That was never God's intent. That is always only the result of the fall, Adam's choice to sin. So what exactly happened? Was it at this moment when Adam and Eve sinned that that all the bad stuff we don't like entered the world, like, like thorns and thistles and bacteria and viruses and mosquitoes? Is that when all of it came to be? No, because God finished creating back on day six. So God was done creating. He won't create again until the end of the Bible. So all of those things existed, but before sin, they never harmed humanity. Adam and Eve would have never gotten sick by a bacteria, by a virus. They would have never gotten bit by a mosquito because they were at perfect peace with creation. But sin ruined that peace. Now the earth and its creatures are at war with humanity. We harm the earth, the earth harms us. I got bit a couple weeks ago by chiggers. I am allergic to them. They drive me crazy. I cannot sleep. It itches so bad. And as I was sitting there in my bed itching, I was reflecting on this passage and realizing this isn't God's fault. This is Adam's fault. So I have him to thank for the chiggers biting me because that was never what God intended. Creation and humanity were designed to be at perfect peace and perfect harmony. Sin broke that. So a curse came upon our relationship to creation. And finally, worst of all, a curse came to our relationship to our creator. You may have noticed in verse 8 when God shows up, it's very interesting. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid because they knew he was coming. Before sin, it would appear that God walked on the earth with Adam and Eve. In the cool of the day, they enjoyed friendship together. They talked together. They saw each other. They enjoyed perfect harmony and intimacy with one another, but sin broke that. And so at the end of the chapter, where are Adam and Eve? They are expelled from the garden. They no longer get to walk with God in the cool of the day. They are kicked out of his presence and they can't get back. There's now this cherubim guarding the way back into the garden. Sin destroyed the intimacy that mankind was supposed to have with God. It replaced it with alienation. So the curse of sin, it broke our labors, our our jobs, our work. It broke our relationships to our spouse, to our creator, and to creation. Third part of the curse, worst part of all, the curse of death. When God warned Adam and Eve, when he told them not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he warned them. He said, if you eat, you will surely die. In Hebrew, literally, you will die, die. You'll you'll seriously die. And so now we find out what God meant by that word die. He actually meant two things, two types of death that enter the human race on on this fateful day. First, the curse of physical death. It is at this moment that the human race begins to die. God talks about that in verse 19. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So this is when physical death enters the human race. Now, Adam did not die on the spot. He didn't keel over on the spot, but degeneration began. His body began to head towards the grave. But there was a catch. There was a potential way out of that, and that's the tree of life. And so God says at the end of the chapter, we need to keep man from eating of the tree of life or he'll live forever, he'll never die. Here's what I think was going on. I don't think the tree of life was some magic tree, eat of it once and you live forever. The tree of life actually makes one more appearance in the Bible. Anybody know where else you get the tree of life? The very end, the book of Revelation, chapter 22. God creates a new heavens and the new earth and in the middle of it, the tree of life is back. And Apostle John tells us that that tree of life, it is for the healing of the nations. The tree of life is a tree of healing. I think that Adam was designed with a body just like yours, a body like every other creature on this planet. It would naturally age, decay, and die. 
That's how everything moves in this universe, always towards decay. But that decay would be stopped so long as he continued to eat from the tree of life. I think every day they ate from the tree of life and that tree healed them. It restored them. It undid the natural process of decay so Adam and Eve would have lived forever if they continued to have access to the tree of life. But that access comes to an end because of sin. God expels them from the garden. They have no access to this healing tree. And so decay kicks in and they move inescapably towards the grave. So physical death enters the human race. But even worse than that, spiritual death enters the human race. Spiritual death, separation from God. Before sin, Adam and Eve had an intimate relationship with God. You could think of it as they were basically in the family of God, but now all that changes. There is separation between them and God. I don't think Adam and Eve fully understood that yet, but David did, and he talks about that separation In Psalm 5, he says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. David is talking about God's righteousness, his goodness, what we call his holiness. God is so utterly distinct and separate from sin and evil that he cannot exist in the presence of sin. Sin can't be in the presence of him. So God's holiness, it did not present a problem for Adam so long as Adam was innocent. He could be in the presence of God, in the family of God, but now he wasn't innocent anymore. He was a sinner, and that sin separated from him from God. No longer is he part of God's family. Now he is God's enemy because of sin. That's what we mean by spiritual death, separation from God. And the Bible tells us later that if we remain in that state of spiritual death throughout this life, then when we die, it leads to something even worse, and that's eternal death, eternal separation from our holy creator in a place the Bible calls hell. So what we want to see from the curse of sin is that sin takes Adam and Eve to a horrible place. It destroys everything good in their life and it brings pain and suffering into the world. This curse in Genesis 3, it is the answer to that age-old question that humanity has been asking itself for millennia. Why is there so much pain and suffering in this world? Not because God made pain and suffering. He didn't. He never intended it. It's not God's fault. It's because of Genesis 3. It's because man chose sin and sin brought the curse and the curse destroyed everything good in our lives. It broke everything. It damaged us. That's why there is so much pain and suffering in this world because of the curse of sin. So that's the curse of sin. I wish this is where it was ending, but it still gets worse from here. Third thing we want to look at this morning, now that we've seen the effects of sin and and the curse of sin, let's talk about the legacy of sin. The legacy of Adam's sin You see, Adam's sin didn't just damage you. We just talked about that, how it damaged your body and your relationships and your work and and the world that you live in. Sin damaged us, but that's not all it did. His sin didn't just damage us. His sin changed us. The fundamental nature of humanity changed the moment that Adam sinned. You see, Adam and Eve, they were created innocent, perfectly innocent. They had no inward disposition towards sin. There was nothing inside of them that wanted to choose sin. They had no sin nature. They were free to choose to obey God. But we're not like them. We're not born innocent, are we? We're born sinners. The Bible talks about that in a number of passages, such as Romans 5, 19. Through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You were made a sinner the moment that Adam sinned. Your fundamental nature changed. You are not born innocent. You are not born naturally loving God and loving obedience. You are born bent towards sin. You are born a sinner because of Adam's sin. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We are not born innocent. We are born dead in sin. That phrase in Greek, it means to be enslaved to sin. You belong to sin. The moment you are born, you are broken and in bondage to sin. You love sin. You hate God. That is the nature of humanity since the moment that Adam sinned. I came across a fascinating quote this week from a woman that I'm sure you've never heard of. Her name is Beatrice Webb. She was one of the architects of British socialism. 
And so uh, this is a woman whose whole career was based on the assumption that human beings are basically good, and if you give them a good environment, they will make good choices. Okay, so she, she based her whole career on that assumption. Then later in her life, towards the end of her life, here's what she wrote. Somewhere in my diary, 1890 perhaps, I wrote, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in man. No amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb the bad impulse. What she was putting her finger on, that bad impulse, we call that original sin. You are not born innocent. We are born sinners. We inherit a sin nature from Adam. You can think about it this way. The moment you were born, you already had Adam's sin running through your veins. You inherited his sin. Another word we use for this concept is depravity. Depravity, that doesn't mean that you are as evil as you could possibly be. It means that every part of you is broken and in bondage to sin. Your body, your intellect, your emotions, your relationships, everything is broken and in bondage to sin. We are not born innocent. We are not born good. We are born sinners who are broken and in bondage to sin. Now let's just recognize for a moment, let's pause long enough to recognize, this isn't a popular concept in our world not popular at all. This is not what America believes. What does America believe? America believes that people are basically good. And if you give them a good education and just laws and give them plenty of economic opportunities, then they will make good choices. The Bible says no. No, we will not. Because our problem goes so much deeper than education or economics. The problem is us. That on the root of our nature, we are born sinners, not innocent. We are born loving sin and hating righteousness. And until you fix that root problem, there is no hope for society. The Bible declares that we are born sinners because of Adam's sin. That is the legacy of sin. His sin didn't just damage us. His sin changed us. We have inherited his sin nature because of the choice he made. So that's the legacy of sin. This would be a really depressing morning if this is where the passage ended, on the legacy of sin. If this is all that God was doing, showing us the effects and the curse and the legacy of sin, fortunately, this isn't where we're going to end. Because throughout this passage, it looks so dark and so depressing. You may not have noticed it when we read through it, but there is actually a lot of light in this passage. There's a lot of good news in this passage, and that's what I want to talk now about. The end of sin. We are born sinners. We are born broken and in bondage to sin. What hope do we have? Well, we don't have any hope in ourselves. Our hope is the grace of God. The unmerited mercy and favor of God. God's grace is actually all the way through this passage. You may have missed it when we went through, but, but his grace is at the beginning of the passage, in the middle of the passage, and at the end of the passage. God's grace at the beginning of the passage, and grace God seeks. So Adam and Eve hide, and what does God do? Well, you would expect God to show up with a flaming sword of judgment and put an end to them right there. That's what he promised. You eat, you die. But he doesn't. He shows up, and he, and he seeks them out. Adam, where are you? Now, you recognize when God asks that question, God is omniscient. He's not, like, trying to figure out where Adam is. He knows. He's always known where Adam is. Why is he asking the question? Because rather than drive us out from the dark of our sin, God prefers to draw us out. In love and in mercy, in tenderness, he draws Adam and Eve out of the dark. In grace, he seeks them out. He could have just crushed them. But in grace, he seeks us when we hide. That's at the grace at the beginning of the passage. In the middle of the passage, in grace, he saves. Let's look at those two verses that we skipped earlier. Verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This begins with God talking about the actual snake. 
So, so verse 14 in particular, he talks about snakes because a snake was involved in this sin. God says, cursed are you more than anything else. Or I think a better translation would be banned are you. You're banned from all other creatures. What God is talking about is the, the distance between snakes and everything else. Nothing likes snakes. Cows don't like them. Dogs don't like them. Cats don't like them. There is, there is separation between snakes and animals. Everything fears snakes. So, so God creates separation between snakes and the rest of the animal kingdom. He creates separation. He also humbles snakes. That's the second part of verse 14. When he says, you'll crawl in your belly and you'll eat dust. We, we know snakes don't actually eat dust. That was a common metaphor in the Old Testament for humiliation. God humiliated snakes in the front of all of the rest of creation. Now nothing like snakes. We look down on snakes. We despise them. They are humiliated because of their involvement in the sin. So verse 14, it's about, about the snakes, it's about snakes being separated and humiliated. In the first part of verse 15, he talks about how there will be enmity between the woman and the snake, between your seed and her seed. That's about the hostility that Humans have always had towards snakes. We fear them, we kill them, they fear us, they kill us. That war between snakes and humans. But then at the end of verse 15, it gets really interesting. Because all of a sudden, God quits talking about the snake. He talks about something else. He gives us clues. You'll notice he says, middle of verse 15, and he shall bruise you on the head. Not and your seed, they shall bruise uh, your seed, the snakes on them, but, but he goes to singular. He, one male descendant of you, shall be in a battle with, with you, this particular snake. I think what God is doing is going behind the snake to the being that possesses it. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about the conflict that would exist between that serpent, between Satan and one particular male descendant of Eve. They would be in a pitched battle, and in the course of this battle, the snake, that is Satan, he would strike the heel of the man. Now, if you get bit in the heel by a poisonous viper, you die. This is a death blow. So the male descendant, he would die, but not before crushing the head of Satan. That's also a death blow. What God is doing is he is prophesying the gospel. This is the first revelation of the gospel in the Bible. I don't think Adam and Eve get it. I I think they see nothing but snakes here. I don't think they understand how deep it is. But for us living after the cross, we understand this is Jesus. God is promising he is going to defeat our mortal enemy, Satan, once and for all. And he's going to do it through a descendant of Eve. A descendant of Eve who will crush the head of Satan, but at the cost of his own life. He will die to defeat Satan. That's Jesus God's own son became one of us, the ultimate descendant of Eve, that one male descendant who could actually defeat Satan. He defeated Satan, but that defeat came at the cost of his own life. He's talking about the cross. This is the first revelation of the gospel, that God himself will fix the problem that mankind has created. God will send a man who will defeat our enemy once and for all and deliver us from the curse. So in grace, God saves. And then at the end of the passage, in grace, God provides. Look again at verse 21. Really short verse that seems at first to be pretty insignificant. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they realized they have a problem. They've got shame that they need to cover up. They have vulnerability that they need to protect themselves from. And so they grab fig leaves as fast as they can to cover themselves up. Now, let me ask you, how effective are fig leaves as clothing? Not effective at all. You you can't wear a garment made of leaves, not for long, especially now that they're about to be kicked out into a world full of thorns and thistles. Fig leaves aren't going to protect you from that. So they are completely unable to provide for themselves. They can't do anything about their shame. They can't do anything about their vulnerability. And so God steps in. And he puts to death an animal and creates garments of skin, good clothes to protect them. And let me ask you, how much does God charge for these clothes he gives to Adam and Eve? Nothing. It's a free gift. That's what grace is. God is saying to Adam and Eve, here is how I operate. You just rebelled against me with eyes wide open. You didn't sin on accident. You did it on purpose. I should give you death. Instead, I'm going to give you a free gift. I'm going to take care of your shame. I'm going to cover you up. I'm going to take care of your vulnerability. I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to charge you nothing for that. God covers Adam's sin as a free gift. He does the same for us. 
He offers us the ultimate covering, the blood of Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins, to give us eternal life. He gives it as an absolutely free gift. You don't have to pay him anything. God provides in grace. And so let me ask you, have you received that free gift of forgiveness and eternal life from God? Or are you trying to earn it? Did you come to church this morning because you are hoping to earn brownie points with God? You are hoping to earn God's love, to to make yourself more worthy of him. Well, that's never gonna work. Trying to earn God's love is like trying to make clothes out of fig leaves. It doesn't work. You can't earn God's love, but that's okay because he'll give it to you for absolutely free. He doesn't charge you anything. It is an absolutely free gift. You can have forgiveness and eternal life the moment that you say to God, yes. Yes, God, I want that. I believe it's a free gift. You're giving it to me because Jesus died for me and rose from the dead, and now it's mine for free. The moment you say yes to God, it is yours. There is no price you have to pay because Jesus paid it all. God's forgiveness and eternal life, everything good from God comes by grace. It comes for free. Now for those of us who have received that free gift, I want to leave you with a couple challenges this morning. A couple things to think about. When sin comes calling, when you find yourself tempted, when sin is knocking at the door, I want you to remind yourself of two things. First of all, I want you to remind yourself of how much sin will cost you. When temptation comes, it's going to promise you a lot of great stuff. Temptation promises incredible pleasure, but it never satisfies. It never provides. Instead of pleasure, it gives you pain. That is the inescapable consequence of sin. It will steal your innocence and intimacy. It will rob you of everything good in your life. It will fill you with shame, fear, and guilt and destroy you. Sin is never worth the cost. So first, remind yourself of how much sin will cost you. And second, remind yourself of how much sin has already cost God. How much did sin cost God? Well, it costs us a lot. It hurts us, damages us, but it costs God far more. Because that male descendant in in chapter three who died to defeat Satan, that's God. God in human flesh, God the son, the one and only man who ever lived an innocent life. The one and only man who deserved to be blessed, he freely chose to die on our behalf. I find it fascinating that that the fall of the human race happened at a tree, and so did the salvation of the human race. Two trees. At the first tree, man chose to take the place of God and brought sin to the entire human race. At the second tree, God chose to take the place of man and brought salvation to the human race, but it cost him his life. Jesus gave his life freely. No one made him go there. He was not pushed to the cross. He chose it freely. He chose to suffer unimaginable torment and die naked and humiliated in front of the world. He did that for us. Remember how much sin cost God, the life of his own son. When temptation comes knocking at your door, remember from last week, Satan's strategy is to go after your heart by making you feel ungrateful. Fight that temptation by remembering how much Jesus gave up to deliver you from sin. Unimaginable torment died naked and humiliated in front of the world for you. We have so much to be grateful for. Temptation will lose its grip on you if you can just remember how much sin will cost you and how much it has already cost God. Let's go to the Lord and give thanks. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are a God of grace. Father, we freely confess before you we are not innocent. We have chosen to sin. There is no one to shift the blame to. We are guilty. We chose to rebel against you. We do it every day, God, and we deserve your punishment. We deserve justice to come upon us. How grateful we are, God, 
that you caused the punishment that we deserve to fall on your son, that on that second tree, on the cross, he took our place. He suffered the torment we deserve. He died naked and humiliated. We deserve that, but he took it freely upon himself so that we might be saved. How we rejoice and celebrate that. And Father, we pray for any person here who has not received that free gift, any person who who thinks they have to earn your love, who is trying to merit your forgiveness, please, Lord, open their eyes this morning to see it's not something to earn, it is a free gift to receive. I pray, Father, save them this morning through grace. I pray for all of us who have received your grace. I pray, Father, that your spirit would get hold of us, that you would open our eyes and help us to see the cost of sin, that it is never worth the cost. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see and believe how much sin will cost us. Please help us not to make Eve's mistake. Temptation looks so desirable to us. Help us to remember that as soon as we give in, It fills us with pain. And I pray, Father, help us never to forget how much sin has already cost you. That it cost you the life of your own beloved son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be grateful for his death on our behalf. I pray that we would live lives of gratefulness. I pray, Father, help us to learn these lessons. From this dark chapter of human history, I pray that we would see your grace and that we would respond in faith and obedience. God, you are so good to us. Thank you for the gift of your own beloved son who has delivered us and saved us from the problem that we created. Thank you for your grace. For the glory of your son, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week. This is Matt Morton, here with Brian Fisher and Blake Jennings, and we are following up on the sermons from Genesis 3, and uh, topic is sin, evil, depravity. Uh, We record these on Monday morning, and as we were talking earlier, we all agreed there's no better time to talk about evil and evil days than Monday morning. So here we are. Uh, So we are going to start really by tossing out a couple of questions and thoughts from uh, your sermon this past Sunday, which was October 20th, on the consequences of sin and death. Uh, Blake and Brian, you guys both talked about depravity yesterday, the idea that we are born sinners and that our status as sinners really is the reason why we sin. Uh, Blake, you mentioned while we were preparing for this, that was really a pretty highly debated concept in the early church. So, Walk us through why. Why did people debate the idea of human beings as sinners naturally? And why does that even matter? Why do we need to know about that history of that debate? Sure. Uh, When you look at the history of this debate, it's actually, we kind of glossed over it. The church has been fighting over the question of depravity for the last couple thousand years. The most famous round of, of the debate was between two men back in the 300s about. You had a British monk named Pelagius. Uh, who was debating the issue of depravity with a pastor theologian named Augustine. And Pelagius denied depravity. He believed that human beings stand on their own two feet. So we're not sinners by nature. We didn't inherit original sin from Adam. We, like Adam and Eve in the garden, are able to freely choose whether we want to obey God or not. So all that we need in life is someone to show us what to do. That's where God's word and God's son fit in for Pelagius. He believed that God's word simply was there to tell us what to do, and God's son came to earth simply to show us what to do. His death on the cross was merely an example for us. So uh, Pelagius's view of salvation was pretty low. You don't really need to be saved, you just need to be helped. You just need to be shown what to do. Augustine disagreed, so he read passages, we talked about these yesterday, like Romans 5.19, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, or Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and those passages led him to embrace this concept that we now call depravity. Uh, Augustine responded to Pelagius, he did not hold that we are able to stand on our own two feet. We're not standing at all, we're not even crawling on the ground, he believed we're completely dead. We're completely broken and in bondage to sin. Sin 
owns us from the moment that we're born, we are bent towards sin. So we don't just need God to tell us what to do. We need him to save us. We need him to deliver us from our bondage to sin. And so for Augustine, salvation is all about grace. It's not about anything that we do because we can't possibly earn our salvation. We need God to step in 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 an amazing way, and that's what he did through Jesus Christ. So The church has debated this, and the reason why it has been such a debate is because all of your understanding of the death of Jesus and all of your understanding of the nature of salvation hinge on whether you hold to depravity or not. So really important debate uh, that played out in the history of the church, a fascinating subject. For us, we wanted to just present during this message how that fits into Genesis 3 and how that affects us today. Yeah, and for those listening, when Blake says Augustine, you might also say Augustine. So certainly, <laughs> if you a, were in, in in error, you might say it that way. <laughs> a big part of the history of this debate really is just how to pronounce that name. Um, Thanks for contributing. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let me let me interject as well. You, you see uh, Pelagian thinking in the more liberal branches of the church today. So Jesus as a substitutionary payment for our sin is not taught in the liberal branches. It's not. Uh, emphasize it's not important. What's important about Christ is Christ is a, a good man, an ethical teacher, as an example of how to live. Consequently, the the emphasis not on preaching the gospel uh, to get men's penalty for sin paid for through Jesus Christ, but social action, help people improve their lot in life, help them learn to make better choices in life. So we see Pelagianism played out there. We see uh, even some continuing debate about the nature of total depravity within more evangelical circles as well, because your your very strong five-point Calvinist would argue that total depravity means total inability. That is, mankind cannot respond to God's initiation until God regenerates a man. And then once the person is regenerated, then they believe and they are saved. Whereas we would argue, no, Mankind can respond because God is initiating with mankind. As, as it says in John, Jesus, Jesus says, um, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. The Spirit is working and drawing people to himself. So what God requires is faith, and men can respond in faith. They can respond and accept Christ's free offer, even though we are completely affected, mind, emotion, and will, by the fall. So Augustine would argue that at least in some sense, you and I are held accountable for Adam's sin. And one of the questions that flows from that discussion, and Brian, I'd love if you would address this, is isn't that unfair? Why am I being held accountable for something that Adam did before I was even born or had a choice in the matter? I suppose if we define fairness as God treating each person exactly the same, then we would have to say, No, God is not fair because we are each born into different bodies, different families with different capacities in different eras of history. So we each have a unique experience in that respect. Uh, God doesn't treat each person exactly the same. So the alternative to Adam representing us would be that we each represent ourselves. So we each would be tested individually, tempted individually, and either stand or fall individually and I can confidently say that I would not pass that test. <laughs> In my, my more arrogant moments, I might like to say, yeah, I could, I could have passed the test that Adam faced in the garden. But the fact is, I, I couldn't. And I prove that the fact that I couldn't every day when I sin. As believers, we know we have the Spirit of God. So we actually have the capacity to choose not to sin, to choose righteousness at each moment of temptation. And yet we do not always. We, In other words, we validate the fact that if we had been in Adam's place, we would have sinned as well. So God designated Adam as our representative. And so his fall, his sin, became our sin. That's what plunged us into depravity. So that's why we're born sinners. So uh, a simple analogy would be that we, we live in America. We live in a representative democracy. We vote certain men and women to represent us in Austin, we're here in Texas, or in Washington. So those men and women go and they place a single vote, but that single vote counts for many people. We don't all go to Washington. We send the representative. Representative votes on our behalf. Adam sinned and sinned on our behalf. And 
And the New Testament tells us that in a similar way, God designated Jesus Christ, his son, to be also our representative. So he didn't have to die singularly and individually for each one of us because we didn't sin or go through the fall individually. He dies as as the representative for all of mankind, one death for all sins, for all time. Great. Yeah. And nobody complains about the supposed unfairness of Jesus as our representative, right? Because certainly I am granted the righteousness of Jesus Christ because of what he did on my behalf. I haven't earned it. On the other hand, uh, it could be fairly said that I have earned also the guilt that uh, I see in Adam, that Adam is sinful. And yes, I inherited a degree of sin nature from Adam, but I am sinful on my own. I've also made sinful choices. Um, I want to shift gears for just a moment before we wrap up. Both of y'all talked about the consequences of sin and the effects of sin in our lives yesterday. Uh, One of the questions that I have, and I'm sure many others then, is, okay, what about those sins that don't seem to have immediate consequences? Uh, Certainly, if I attack somebody, if I steal something, there will be immediate legal consequences, relational consequences. On the other hand, there's all kinds of sins that people struggle with that they don't really seem to hurt anybody else. If I uh, covet my neighbor's house, uh, you know, I violated one of the Ten Commandments. I have broken the laws of God's holiness, and yet nobody seems to really be hurt by that immediately. It stays inside of my heart and mind. Some would say something similar about pornography, for example. Who am I really hurting when I look at something? Uh, It's not as if I'm actually hurting another individual. It's a choice that I make. So what do we do with those sins that don't seem to have visible or immediate consequences? I'll just open that up for you guys to talk about. Well, I think uh, immediately of that passage in Ecclesiastes that says, in effect, because justice doesn't come quickly or the, the sentence against evil doesn't come immediately, Therefore, the hearts of men grow cold toward God and they grow inclined toward greater evil. In other words, sometimes when we don't see that that immediate consequence of sin, our character begins to drift more and more toward that sin. In other words, we begin to die a slow death. It might not be an immediate death. In a similar way, uh, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. They didn't die physically the moment that they sinned, but they did begin to die physically, a slow death. And sin affects us the same way. It begins to uh, cause degeneration of our character. And so we may not see an immediate effect on ourselves or on others. We may be able to hide the consequences for a time, but it, it will undermine who we are. Yeah, I, I like to take people to Romans six sixteen when I'm asked that question. Paul says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? I think what Paul is telling us is that every choice that we make leads invariably one of two directions, either towards a habit of righteousness or a habit of sin. I think that Paul is getting to the, you know, he's getting kind of behind the the uh, the science that we now know about how habits are formed and how they become addictions. When you choose sin, like a, a sin that you don't think hurts anyone, like like pornography, for example, we now have quite a body of scientific evidence that demonstrates that by choosing pornography today, I make that desire stronger tomorrow. And in fact, not only is the desire stronger, but the level that a person is tempted to go is deeper. And that's how all sins work. When you choose sin, it makes you a slave of sin and it leads you down a path of death. I think it's helpful what Brian said. Adam and Eve didn't die on the spot, but death became unavoidable because of sin. And that's exactly what happens to us. So every day you face a choice, um, whether you're going to walk down the path that leads towards righteousness, leads towards building habits of righteousness, or the path that leads towards death, that builds habits and addictions of sin. Yeah, and I was thinking about an illustration even from when I was taking driver's ed. I remember as we were driving down the road, the instructor kept saying, keep your eyes focused forward because as soon as you turn your eyes to the right or the left, you won't even realize it, but your hands will start to drift over to that other lane. And so as soon as I direct my attention towards sinful thoughts, if I constantly say, I want what my neighbor has, for example, I have to have his house, his job, his car, 
without even realizing it perhaps over time, I can begin to adjust my actions as well to grasp at what God has not given. And so my heart drives what my body does and what my words say. And so there's a very real sense uh, in which the heart is where all of these sins stem from, even if the consequences are not immediately apparent. So. Yeah, Paul says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. It, it, we could also translate that, let, let your mindset be on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. That is my orientation in life. Because if what I, I, I meditate upon, I think about, I begin to be drawn toward, I set my affections on, I begin to love that thing, then uh, it shapes my character, my personality, and ultimately the choices that I make, which determine my destiny in life. And I really have just one of two paths, a, a path of life and righteousness following God or a path of death. Great. And we will close on that thought. Great exhortation for this Monday morning. I uh, hope that you have a wonderful week. And as always, go to our website, grace-bible.org, for more information and resources.